Thank you, Steve. Let us open the scriptures as we continue our worship to Second Corinthians chapter six. Second Corinthians chapter six, and we'll pick up at verse eleven from where we got to last week. Verse eleven of chapter six of Second Corinthians. And this is what the word of God says Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. You are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Now in a like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their people and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 7, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one, we corrupted no one, we took advantage of no one. May God add a blessing to his word. Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word. Speak into our hearts, speak into our lives, we pray this morning. And may the instruction and the commandments that we are reading in your word be powerful to us and may we not neglect them because this is your grace to us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. From time to time you do come across people who are very difficult to sort of kind of associate with. And trying to gain some kind of mutual fellowship or or even a common talking point can sometimes, with certain people, seem impossible. These folk are usually reserved. I'll call them, they're like closed books. You know what I mean. Anyway, in endeavour to sort of establish some sort of camaraderie and partnership with them, uh, you open up to them, you want, them to take an, you want to take an interest in them, but there is limited reciprocal fellowship. These people are called... Hard work. One of the most heartwarming experiences of Christian ministry I encounter is when a fellow believer is opposite to that. They are open and transparent about life. They willingly seek your counsel. They openly speak of life with all its trials and all its difficulties and also talk about the joy and the blessings that they have and know and experience. These kind of people are a joy to be with, believe you me. 
You see, when that kind of transparency and open-hearted honesty takes place between the Lord's people and amongst the Lord's people, there is a bond of, of fellowship that is forged that is lasting and is spiritually beneficial to all concerned. But the problem is, we don't experience enough of that, do we? You see, because we're generally private people, we love to keep things to ourselves. We don't want to expose too much the joy and the blessings and the flaws and the weaknesses. We often pull back. We kind of put the brakes on that openness. We don't mind being open with mobile phones and church services. But we often pull back and we restrain our personal fellowship and keep things to ourselves. We, we can even have a, a kind of love for our brothers and sisters, but there is a limit, you know, there is a limit. I'm sure you're picking up the vibes of what I'm talking about here. Well, this is kind of what the Apostle Paul deals with in this section. You see, he has just finished opening his heart to these recalcitrant believers in Corinth, he, he does this in order to, to bend himself and the ministry of the gospel so that it might not be discredited. He opens himself to them and he has tried and tried to encourage a loving reciprocal openness with these saints about the trials of being a faithful ambassador for Christ. He has tried and tried with two letters thus far and with a painful visit to encourage them and to correct them in their sinful behaviour, to admonish them, and he has tried to draw from them a reciprocal love and honest openness towards him. He's really tried to do that. These people were hard work. He loved these people, Paul did. He poured out his heart in chapter 2 verse 4 by saying this, Out of much affliction I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. And thus far there has been precious little love in return. In this case it was not as if there was no conversation, Perhaps it might have been better if there wasn't. You know, these people were a bit like Job's friends. You know, Job's friends would have been better if they'd shut up too. But they came in and gave their ten, ten cents worth to Job and just like the Corinthians, they accused him of being what he was not. You see, the Corinthians slandered Paul. They slandered his integrity. They questioned his apostleship. But on top of all this, on top of all this, now they question his sincere love for them. He sincerely and actively loved these people, but there was no open, active love for him in return. As I said before, these people were real hard work. But as we learned last week, Paul was patient, right? He was patient, he was... He, he was he was kind and he endured in this for the gospel's sake. He endured with kindness. He, he repaid evil with good. That's who the band Paul was. 
He loved these people even though they, they were a closed book to him in many ways. They refused to love him in return and they, they doubted his sincere love for them. You see, there was something deeper going on here though. There was something really deeper going on. And I think we can understand that even in our personal relationship with one another. Whether it's in our marriages or whether it's in our families or whether it's wherever, it's in the church. If there's a lack of love, there's something deeper going on. Okay? There's something deeper. You see, because there was no excusable reason at all for the Corinthian believers to be so miserable and miserly with their love for Paul and to question his love for them. No reason or excuse at all. So what was going down? What was really happening here? What was behind this lack of reciprocal love? We'll find out this first, but what I want you to look at is first Paul's appeal for reciprocal love. And we see this in verses 11 to 13 of our reading this morning. You know, one of the most difficult and hurtful things in life is to have your love for someone go unanswered. I'm sure many of us have experienced that. You see, love in its very essence longs for a reciprocal response. You'd have to agree with that. Love can be described and seen in action in many ways, but the one thing that genuine love for another will do is respond reciprocally. It will respond back to the one, the person, the people who love that person. In other words, genuine love in the family setting, in the church, among the saints, in a marriage between a husband and wife, love can be measured by its mutuality between its recipients. Fulfilled love in whatever setting is a two-way street. We can kind of put those words to it. It longs for a reciprocal response from the giver. Supreme example of this, of course, is that God is love, right? God is love and God longs for no less than responses of love back from his people. No less. And here Paul expresses this in this very first section that we have read. He laid his heart open, his very soul. He was no closed book. He loved these people. Displayed not only by the way, in the way he served them. If you go back in 1 Corinthians, you go right back into the book of Acts. He was a tent. He he made tents. He didn't even ask to give them support. He, He worked his own way through. and So he served them actively. He laid his heart open. But he also encouraged them. He admonished them. He confronted them of their sin, just like a father displays love for his children. That's what he did. He told them in 1 Corinthians 4.15, he says, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He loved them like a godly father loves his children. He was open and honest and patient and kind. And he later said in the next chapter, chapter 7 of this book, verse 3, you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. In other words, he, he was saying, my love for you is a bit like the marriage vow. Paul was saying, I love you for better or worse. That's what he was saying here to these Corinthians. Jesus, remember, he said, the heart expresses itself in speech. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34. And Paul was, was doing that and had done that to the Corinthians. 
He not only actively loved them, but he expressed his heart to them through his letters and his speech to them. And there was nothing about them that had restricted Paul's love for them. Yet there was no reciprocal response of love. And this really affected, as you can imagine, Paul deeply. It did. It affected him deeply. And you can tell this by, by the emotional depth of his call when he puts in this plea. What does he say? Oh, Corinthians! Our heart is open wide. That's what he says. And he repeats this heartfelt plea in verse 2 of chapter 7 where we finished. He says, make room for us in your hearts. We wronged no one. We corrupted no one. We took advantage of no one. Make room for us in your hearts. That was what his plea was. This man's heart was really hurting, folks. And as a father loves his children, Paul then begins to point out the real issue behind their lack of reciprocal love because as I said before just not returning love and not expressing love and not uh, in the, even in the assembly if, if that's failing there's something else there there's something there's a deeper problem just like there was in the Corinthian church and so Paul says you are not restricted by us but you're restricted in your own affections. He's starting to nail the thing down here. This word restricted or restrained has the idea of being cramped or confined. That's what it, that's what it means. And here we see that Paul, amidst all his activity, and during, even during his absence from the Corinthian church, he had done nothing that might hinder their love for him. He was never, for example, so busy, so hurt by them that he crowded them out of his life. No, never. Why? Because genuine Christ-like love, what does it do? Corinthians 30, it bears all things, right? But on the other hand, Paul's chief critics, that's those false teachers that had sort of snuck in and come into the church at Corinth. His chief critics, they had so invaded, they were so pervasive in the hearts and minds of the Corinthian believers that they had created only suspicion and doubt and questions about Paul. Not reciprocal, unrestricted love. And the more the Corinthians' hearts and minds were fed by these false teachers who were against Paul and against his gospel, the more their love for this saint, for their father in the faith, the more their love for Paul diminished. My dear folks, let's learn from this. You see, because the more our hearts and minds are fed by the culture around us, the more our hearts and minds are fed by the philosophies of the world or by a form of godliness which denies God's power or by those who are not open and honest in the gospel of God's grace, by those who say, I love you, but stall when it comes to confronting and keeping you accountable. The more our hearts are fed from these kind of sources, the more our love for God and for one another will be restricted and crowded out. Believe you me, it happens. Our love will be divided. Divided between the Lord and his people 
in our own selfish desires and affections. That's what happens. You see, the Corinthians' own selfish affections were what restrained their love for Paul. They had a divided heart and it led to diminished loves, diminished love for the apostle. God's appointed minister. You see, Paul longed for their undivided love. In like exchange, I speak as to children. Open wide to us, he pleads. So what Paul has done here is pinpointed the issue of their selfish affection. But now he goes deeper. He's not finished yet. I love this. He, he doesn't sort of put a generic wide thing. He, he, he goes deeper and, and we really, really need to get a hold of this because there's great instruction for this. He goes deeper to the very heart of the root of the problem. And we see this in verses 14 to 17. A command for separation. You know, at home I have an orange tree. An orange tree that has never flourished like it should have. All it has ever done is produce yellow leaves and never any fruit. might have something to do that it doesn't actually belong to me, it belongs to James, but he's never picked it up from his place since he got married. <laughs> Probably a curse on it. Anyway, I have pruned it, I've watered it, I've sprayed it. There is nothing I have done so far to the externals of that tree that has made it flourish. You know what? The reason it has not flourished because I have not got to the root of the problem. See, recently I have discovered that the real problem is not in the, in the leaves but in the roots. The real problem with that orange tree is festering beneath where the roots are battling with a, a, a fungi disease and also there's a, a huge neglect of nutrients. I did a little experiment, you see. You see, until I deal with the root of the problem, that tree, my tree, James's tree, will be useless and fruitless. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul does here in our text. In loving care for the Corinthians, he goes to the root of their divided heart and their loveless problem, I call it. He goes below the surface of their lives and exposes the real cause of their divided, selfish and restricted love. And really it comes down to this. They were trying to have a foot in two camps. It was all about their living in the world, but not being of the world. It was all about their lack of separation from sin and vice and cultural error that they had been saved out of. The Corinthian church, like many believers today, were enjoying dabbling in the world and religious error while still maintaining their worship and trust in Jesus Christ. They were wanting to have a foot in two camps. But that kind of living only produced a lack of a genuine love for God which manifested itself in a suspicious lovelessness for the Apostle Paul. We can even apply that today. If a person really loves God, you know how else he'll love? You know how that's seen? It won't be seen by how many times he comes to church and how many times he reads his Bible and how many times he prays. It'll be seen on his love for the saints. 
So Paul then gives four commands to correct the root of the problem. And the first command he gives is, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now before we look at this command, we need to know that this whole section on separation is often cited completely out of context and is applied to all sorts of unwarranted situations. I want to make that clear. To clarify this, this is not a call for believers to refuse any association with believers who might even differ in theological distinctives. It's not a call to throw them out of your lives. It's not a call to divorce your unsaved spouse like some of the Corinthians were doing. It's not a call to separate yourself into some monastic order to be free from potential defilement of the world like we have seen in history past. It's not a call to do that. It's not even a call, listen to this, it's not even a call to disassociate yourself completely and totally and thoroughly from immoral and bad and evil people. You got that? Paul deals with actually that subject, if you want a bit more clarification on that, when he, when he calls for a disassociation from unrepentant professing Christians back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9, to 9 and 10. He is talking about the, the immoral man and he's giving instructions that you are to disassociate yourself from this immoral man. But then he backs his up with the, in this verse 9 and 10. He says, by the way, I did not mean with all the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of this world. In other words, I know that you have to rub shoulders with these people every day. You have to work with them, etc., etc. I did not mean for you to disassociate yourself from those people. I'm talking about the unrepentant professing believer. In other words, cutting these people out of our everyday lives would really be shirking our responsibility in the gospel and ignoring Jesus' example. Remember Jesus' example of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners, Matthew 28. So the separation call before us is more about making choices that involve a separation from as well as a separation to. Like the Thessalonians, remember, what did they do? They turned to God from idols. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 So this first command of not being bound together or unequally yoked, as our King James Version cites it, with unbelievers, it has its background, by the way, in the Old Testament, where it was against the Mosaic law for any farmer to even think about hooking up an ox and a donkey to plough a field together. It sounds ridiculous as it is ridiculous. Deuteronomy 22 cites those two animals. It was forbidden. But the analogy here is emphasising the two different natures of the beast. And as you can imagine, even in our modern day setting, an ox and a donkey are very different. And the idea of those two animals being yoked together and getting along together and working together to do a task, folks, believe me, it does not happen. It will not happen. They're like chalk and cheese. 
The same impossibility of this working relationship for God's glory is when believers voluntarily yoke themselves with unbelievers. That's what's here. In other words, they are two diff- there are two different natures involved. One is a new creation in Christ, which we have looked at in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and the other is still in sin, and his old nature drives him. That's all he's got. They are two different breeds, can we say. And in joining the two of them in the name of tolerance and cooperation for God's glory is not to be. It cannot be. I mentioned this this morning in our theology class. For example, Satan's greatest ploy, did you know, is not to go on an all-out frontal attack with the church. Otherwise, we'd beat him back with whatever it takes. Satan's ploy is to join the church, to link up with its people in varieties of ways so as to destroy and weaken and restrict the church from within. That's what Satan's ploy is. In Corinth, this is what happened. False teachers came in, they infiltrated the church, and then they encouraged believers to willingly blend pagan worship into their worship of God. This blending included even the immoral practices of their culture of that time, and this was all under the guise of Christian liberty and tolerance and cooperation. Nothing changes, right? This is why Paul spent so much time speaking about the liberty of a believer in his letters to them. The push and thrust of the world in its sinful normality to be blended into our lives, all in the name of these things, has never been stronger than today, folks. It never has. God wants a reciprocal response of what? He wants a reciprocal response of love and obedience in response to his love to us. Do not be bound together with unbelievers. That's a foundational command for Christian living. And the Corinthians disobeyed it. It became the root cause of all their problems. Whether it be in marriage, whether it be forming a business partnership or engaging in some spiritual exercise, we are called not to be bound to an unbeliever, period. The three other imperatives, commands in this section that we have read underpin what the first command has stated. And these are come out from their midst. And the third one is be separate, says the Lord. And the fourth one says do not touch what is unclean. And as you'll see, they're in uh, capitals in your text, which means that uh, these are quotations from a number of Old Testament passages. And Paul uses them to emphasize his point here. Now these commands come out from and be separate along with the do not touch. All these commands, they have an urgency enjoined to them. In other words, the thrust of these commands demand decisive, immediate action. Decisive action that is total without any delay. That's the nuance, that's the force of these words when they're strung together in the text as we see them. You see, it's not about improving your behaviour from here on while you gradually wean yourself from whatever sinful alliance you may be involved in. It's not about that at all. 
This call here is a comprehensive call to walk away from any unholy alliance and renew your fellowship with God, which will demand that you do not walk down that track again. In other words, learn from your mistakes. But how many of us do not even do that? So often we don't. It will demand also that we set up boundaries beyond which we will not cross again. This is not legalistic teaching here. This is what the word of God says. And this is what he, God commands of us. And has ever, if there was ever anything needed in our Christian living, it is boundaries that we set. Not boundaries that we set for ourselves from within ourselves, but boundaries that we set for ourselves from the Word of God. It will demand that you will be distinct in your worldview, in practice, in living, in the workplace, in your marriages, in, in courting a prospective spouse in your business dealings, in your worship of God. You need to be distinct in these things. This is what these commands demand of us. That's what this is all about. You see, folks, it's always been God's will for his people to be distinctively different. Distinctively different from unbelievers in our practices and worship and reasons for living. Leviticus chapter 20 verse 24 and 26 says, I am the Lord your God who separated you from the peoples. You shall be holy to me for I the Lord am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. I love being owned by the Lord, don't we? It's an awesome thing. But why? Why should we be separate? Why are we not to blend and cooperate with unbelievers in order to please the Lord and to bring about his purposes? Why aren't we to do that? That's a good question. And Paul, I believe, anticipates a kind of question like that and he gives a number of answers by asking, again, like Paul does, rhetorical questions. In other words, questions that don't need to be answered but kind of give the answer themselves. And he asks, what partnership? Or what fellowship? Or and then what harmony? And then he says, and what do believers have in common? And lastly, what agreement can there be in such a union? In other words, just as light and darkness cannot blend and be distinctly light and darkness still, nor can righteousness or anything against the law of God have fellowship. That's what he's pointing out here. The result is spiritual disaster. It's like the donkey and the ox being yoked together to plough a field. The combination, the partnership is conflicting, folks. The job will not get done, even in our modern, modern day setting, if we try and blend righteousness and unrighteousness. Unbelievers and believers to get God's job done in our world. There can be no fellowship, no harmony, no agreement between what God has called holy and what is still unholy. There can be no agreement or blending of worship by the Christian who is, what is the Christian by the way? He's the temple, she's the temple of the living God. For he dwells within us. There can be no blending of what we are involved in without a vital worship. There can be no blending of the true gospel of God with, with any other belief system that belittles 
and makes light of the Trinitarian God whom we worship, the deity of Christ, the absolute sovereignty of God, who by grace alone and Christ alone through faith alone brings about salvation for sinners. There can be no blending with anything that would detract from that. We'll be held accountable if there is. We are to separate. We are to be separate. We are to decisively come out from such false religious systems as the Corinthians were commanded to, no matter what the cost. Love and obedience to God and his word is the reciprocal response we need to have toward the Lord. That's what it is. You see, that's the partnership that God abundantly blesses. That he abundantly rewards. That's the fellowship and harmony that God will use to plough his field with. That's the commonality and agreement that God longs to see his people engage in for his glory. And when this takes place, God promises great reward. As we come to our final point, we see this in uh, 17, the second part of verse 17 and right up into verse 1. You see, the first promise for the believer who separates himself from unbelievers is that he will be welcomed. Do you notice that? This means, this word welcome, this means receive or, or that a reception into the blessing and favour of God is promised. That's what happens. For those who separate themselves, for us believers who, who have been hooked into something that's an unholy alliance, that no matter what it is, according to the word of God, when we separate ourselves that for, for God's glory, there is a promise of blessing, of reception. This promise is favoured, intimate relationship with God. It's likened, you know, it's likened to that of a father with his sons and daughters. That's what it says here in the text. Now, I know a good deal about this because not only have I brought up up five children with my wife, but when I was younger, a lad, I know that my behaviour too often caused the rupture in the sweet fellowship that I had with my father. But what a joy, folks, what a joy, what a blessing it was when all was restored. You see, like the prodigal son, remember the prodigal son, Luke chapter 15? While he was away and living it up and riotous living, wine, woman and song, etc., indulging in the lust of the flesh and eventually working in a pigsty. While he was there, he didn't know too much about the joy and intimate fellowship of being the son of his father, did he? Oh, no. But when he repented, when he turned, when he separated himself and returned home, what did his father do? His father kissed him and forgave him and clothed him and fed him. So it will be with any believer who separates themselves from sin and ungodly alliances. That's what God promises right here, verses 17 and 18. So what are we going to do? How are we going to to reciprocate in this? Look at the text in verse 1 of chapter 7. I love its clarity. Here is how God longs for us to respond. This is what he says. God's word says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What greater motivation can we have than for a believer, for a believer to separate himself from from sinful alliances than this. 
No greater motivation. You see, the idea of let us cleanse ourselves is, is cleansing from all that defiles God's temple, which is our bodies. First Corinthians 5, I've already mentioned that. In other words, this cleansing response, though it is a work of God, Ephesians 5.26, it is a work of God. He's just like he forgives us sins when we come to salvation. He cleanses us also on a daily basis. Just as although it's a work of God, it also must be carried out individually by us as people. Notice how Paul puts himself in that section. He said, cleanses us. He involves himself there. This is a necessary spiritual action where each believer is involved with his own sin and defilement. 1 John 1 9, what does it say? If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I always encourage people when they come and, and maybe hooked up into something that they're not, should not be. Um, Take them to this verse and I says, don't just say, oh Lord, forgive me for all my sin. That's too general. That's, that's not confessing sin. Whatever it is, be specific, be honest and open and reciprocal to the God who loves you. Lord, I've been hooked into this, I've been hooked into that, I'm doing this, I'm watching pornography, I have done things, my thoughts have been here on where it should not be. Name them. That's confession. That's meaning business with God. And what does it say? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, no genuine confession on your part. If there's no genuine confession on your part, that equals to no fellowship and forgiveness on God's part. That's the deal. Both the sin of the flesh and the mind, and the mind and the spirit. You see the word spirit there? It starts with a little s, so it's not the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's, it's the sin, the, the sinful physical actions that we're involved in, and also the thoughts of our mind need to be cleansed and restored to fellowship with the Lord. That should be our response to our Heavenly Father. We should be marked out as those who pursue this kind of holiness at all costs. Why? Because God is holy and we are to be holy. That's how in the fear of God, that's how in the fear of God we perfect the holiness that he has created in us in Christ through the gospel. From God's perspective, you know, every truly born again believer is a holy person. He's separated to God. And we're to continually pursue holiness that he has created in us. That's the call of a believer while living in this world. We are to work out our own salvation in fear and trembling, Philippians 2, 12. And this is a lifelong struggle. I struggle with it. The Apostle Paul struggled with it. I know you all struggle with it. But pursuing holiness, we must. And it starts right here. Come out from among them. Be separate. And come in clean with the Lord so that he will cleanse us. I wonder if we're actively involved and engaged in this spiritual exercise that we need to be taking place in our lives, not once a year, not once every six months, I would suggest on a daily basis. Is there a reciprocal love and obedience toward God that he deserves from us, which is manifested and will be manifested in love for others?
is there? May we all be challenged and encouraged to obey the Lord in these things and to enjoy his loving Father fellowship in order to glorify him. Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we do just bow, Lord, solemn words, serious words, and words of commandment that we confess, we disobey. Well, Father, help us to, to have a hatred for sin. May we not be guilty of allowing culture to blend its ways and its impetus and its philosophies into our lives so that we might think all these things that are against you are normal. Help us to separate ourselves. Help us to be ambassadors for Christ that will be marked by our holiness. And so, Father, teach us, we pray, and ask that you would bless us throughout this week. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.